Our sermon text reading today is from 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 12. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This, was why, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The events of chapter 4 in the book of 1 Samuel would naturally cause a crisis of faith among the people of Israel. Israel has just been soundly defeated in battle, not once, but twice, against the Philistines. And both of these battles were battles that the Israelites assumed that they would win. In total, 34,000 soldiers died. Eli the high priest and his sons Hophni and Phinehas are now dead. The, The leaders in Israel are now dead. And even more than that, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolic representation of the fact that God was dwelling with his people, has been captured and carried off by the enemies of God. The word Ichabod is ringing out in the hearts of God's people because the glory of God has departed from Israel. You see, what makes Israel special 
is not the land or its ethnic identity. What makes Israel special or what made her special was that God was with them. And now it seems that God is no longer with them and has been carried away by enemies. Chapter 4 is one of the lowest points that we find Israel in the whole of the Bible. The Israelites quite naturally would be thinking to themselves, what does all of this say about our God? Has he forsaken us? We thought that our God was the God above all gods. We thought that he was the God of the universe, unparalleled in in might and power, the God of heaven and earth. And here this God is captured by the Philistine army. Maybe our God is not as strong as we once thought he was. And I think if we're honest this morning, many of us have found ourselves asking those type of questions, both out loud or even allowing them to run through our mind. As we look out into the social and religious landscape of our society, it can often feel quite discouraging for it seems that often the wicked are the ones that are prospering and the godly are the ones that are suffering. Oftentimes Christians seem to be on a team that is always losing. There's study after study that is reporting that Christianity is declining at a very significant pace in this country. The New York Times reported earlier this summer that we are currently in the middle of the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. And because of this, one writer says that Christians are now strangers in a very strange land. And I think the temptation for all of us in this is to become fearful or fretful, to begin to hunker down and to protect what's ours, to effectively live lives as if our God is not seated on his throne, that the secularization of our society has somehow chained the Lord. Our sermon text comes to us this morning, and it reminds us that our God's power has and will never be limited. In chapter 4, we learn that God will not be manipulated by his people And in chapter 5, we will see that God will not be domesticated by the false gods of this world. So this morning, I simply want to come and encourage us as we think together and meditate concerning the power of our God. And I want us to see God's power in two ways from this text in 1 Samuel. I first want us to see his sovereign power. And then I want us to see his surprising power, his sovereign power, and then his surprising power. So first, his sovereign power. One of the truths that the scriptures relentlessly impress upon its faith readers is the fact that the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith, the God that we have come to worship this morning is the God 
who is above all other gods. Psalm 97 verse 9 puts it in this way. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth, and you are exalted far above all gods. In Exodus chapter 15, which we heard in our call to worship, we heard these words, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In Isaiah 44, verse 6, the Lord through the prophet says, I am the first and the last, besides me there is no God. At every turn, the Bible lays out before us that our God is the God above all other gods, and those other gods are no gods at all. We see that clearly in this story this morning. In verse 1, of 1 Samuel 5, we are told that the Philistines capture the ark of God, which we witness take place in chapter 4. And they bring this ark from Ebenezer, which is in Israel, to Ashdod, which is now in Philistine territory, which is about 35 miles away. And they bring the ark to, and as they bring the ark to Ashdod, they bring it into the house of Dagon, who is the national god of the Philistines at this time. Scholars do a lot of debating on who Dagon is. Uh, for many, he is believed to be the father of all gods, at least according to the Philistines. Others suggest that he is a grain god or a fish god. But either way, he is the supreme deity, at least in the mind of the Philistines. So the Philistines bring the ark of God into the temple of this false god. And they do this for two primary reasons. First, the ark of God, at least in the mind of a Philistine, is now their war trophy. It's a sign of their victory over Israel. It reminds me of times when I would go to a friend's house and I would walk into their house and the first thing that I would be greeted on their walls was several different deer heads. And you, if you want to imagine what it looks like for Demiron to be scared, it's to wake up in the middle of the night and look up and see a deer head looking me in my eyes. But, but the reality is, is that they have these deer heads because they are signs of victory. It shows that, that this person, as they went hunting, that they had a successful hunt. Deer heads might not be your thing, but you can imagine it in this way. You walk into Little Caesars Arena and you see the championship banners that are hanging there. This is how the Philistines treated the Ark of God. The second reason that the Ark is placed in the house of Dagon was because in the ancient Near East, it was believed that when human battles would take place, it would serve as a battle between the gods. Battles between nations were viewed as these proxy wars between the battle among the gods. So when Israel was defeated by the Philistines, it was understood that Dagon had defeated Yahweh, the God of Israel. So bringing the ark into Dagon's house was a way to depict, at least in the mind of the Philistines, that the Lord was at the service of their God, just as Israel 
would be at the service of the Philistines, that Yahweh bowed before this Philistine God. And so they placed the ark of God beside Dagon as if the Lord was an honored servant in their house. Now notice what takes place in verse 3. The people of Ashdod rose early the next day, maybe to mock the Ark of the Covenant, or to perhaps offer sacrifices to worship Dagon. But they came and were surprised to see that Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Their god, Dagon, was lying prostrate before the Ark. The text intentionally portrays Dagon as laying before the Lord in humble adoration. Now, we don't know how this took place. We don't know if the Lord did this by natural or supernatural means. But the point is clear. Dagon is bowing before our God. Now, you can imagine how the people would have tried to explain this away. Maybe there was an earthquake and the statue fell down and on its own in this prostrate position, you can hear the people saying, yeah, I, I felt something move last night. Yeah, I, I think there was a, an earthquake. And so we read at the end of verse 3, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. That, that's meant by the original audience, or at least the narrator, to make us laugh. It's a subtle punchline that the author includes to mock Dagon because Dagon needs his people to put him back in his place. Dagon, this mighty god of the Philistines, has fallen and cannot get himself back up. Dagon needs his people to put him back on the shelf. Friends, something is wrong with your god if you have to pick your God up off of the floor. You would think that they would see the foolishness in what they are doing. They would notice how, how silly it must be to have to help their God. And we can't mock them too much because the Bible again and again hammers before us that idolatry is not only sinful, it is also quite silly. It's silly because the idols that we depend on are just as needy and weak as we are. Sin causes us, sin causes us to, to really think or believe that our idols are strong, but at some point we always find out just how weak they actually are. Pick your choice idol. Success, sex, security, power, a name for yourself acceptance, your, your own intellect, all of these things like, are like Dagon. They topple over because they cannot bear the weight of the human soul. They're too weak. They're too dependent upon you. They need you for their sustenance. All idols, every single one of them, sooner or later prove themselves to be nothing more than simple blocks of wood, wholly undeserving and unworthy of our worship 
and completely incapable of saving us from anything. And when we are let down by our idols, we are ultimately led to this place of despair because what we believe to be strong and satisfying actually has no power at all and cannot bring us lasting satisfaction. One writer puts it in this way, often some of the most painful times in our lives are times in which our idols are being threatened or removed. And this is why the Bible again and again warns us of the danger of idolatry. Psalm 115 verses 4 to 8 puts it in this way, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is why the Apostle Paul simply says towards the end of 1 Corinthians, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So the Philistines put Dagon back into his place. The next day, according to verse 4, the people come back early in the morning and they see that Dagon is again lying face down before the ark, but this time something different has taken place. Dagon's head and both of his hands have been cut off. He's not just lying on the ground anymore in, in, in worship. No, he's treated like an enemy who has been vanquished in battle. This is a sign that the Lord is at war with Dagon, and the Lord has proved himself to be victorious. This is the first of many different head wounds that we see throughout the book of First and Second Samuel. The next one will take place in First Samuel 17, where a servant of the Lord, David, crushes the head of a servant of Dagon, Goliath. And after David defeats Goliath, he cuts his head off and proves himself to be victorious. What I think we're meant to see here and the cutting off of Dagon's head is the unfolding of the promise that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the head of the serpent is crushed by a seed of a woman. Cutting off of the hands is the display of Dagon's power being utterly stripped from him. Dagon and the Philistines thought they had the upper hand over Israel, but now they have no hands at all. He's completely powerless, and he has been humiliated. And later we'll read how the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. The text is clear. The Lord is at war, and he goes into enemy territory into the house of this false god and humiliates him in front of his own people. That the Philistines may have humiliated Israel, but now the Lord is humiliating their god. 
This is similar to what God did to the Egyptians in the book of Exodus as he freed his people from slavery. Over and over again through the ten plagues and through the defeat of Pharaoh and his army, the Lord was fighting on behalf of his people and showing that he is stronger than the so-called gods of this world. His sovereign power is on display as he makes these gods literally bow before him. And notice that he does all of this without the help of his own people. You see, Dagon needed assistance from his people. He needed his people to help him off the floor. But our, our God, the, the Lord, is completely sufficient in and of himself, wins this battle all by himself. And this should be instructive for us this morning, friends, because God is teaching the Philistines about his sovereign power over their false god, but he's also teaching his own people that his sovereign power is completely and utterly independent from them. Israel has to be taught this lesson again and again, and so do we. Beloved, our God is not dependent on any of us. He does not need us to carry him like, like Dagon needed the Philistines. No, he will be the only one who will be doing the carrying. Friend, do you see how big your God is this morning? We all have this, this temptation to, to make God smaller than what he is, to put, put, to put limits on, upon his power, to, to box him in, both like the Israelites and the Philistines, to think that our enemies are stronger than he is. Well, friend, if you find yourself in that place this morning, let 1 Samuel 5 be corrective in your thinking and give you confidence that your God is above all gods and he is sovereign in power, that he will not be controlled by anyone, and because of this, he alone is worthy of our worship and adoration. We see the sovereign power of God on display in this text, but we also see his surprising power as well. And this brings us to our second point, God's surprising power, his surprising power. What do I mean by surprising power? When I say surprising power, I mean this story shows us that God gains victory over Dagon and also over all of the Philistines in a surprising way because his victory comes through apparent defeat. Again, you have to think about this, not from, from our perspective as those who are reading the text. We have to think about this from the perspective of the Israelites. Again, Ichabod, God's glory has been removed. It had been taken away from his people from their perspective. God had been captured by their enemies. The Israelites knew from God's law, particularly from Deuteronomy, that because of their sins and the sins of their leaders and their continued unfaithfulness, that they were to be removed from the land, that they were to be ones who were to be sent into exile, but the unthinkable happens. They are not sent into exile, but God himself is sent into exile. 
He has been placed outside of the camp. The God who promised to dwell with his people and the ark that represented this truth seemed to both be God. But notice that through this apparent defeat, at least in the eyes of Israel, God is showing himself victorious over the enemies of his people. After he defeats Dagon, God is not finished. This battle moves outside of the temple and into the streets of the city. And so we read in verse 6 that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. The word heavy in the Hebrew Bible is closely related to the word glory in the Hebrew Bible. So the, 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 the author is doing this wordplay from what we read in chapter 4. The, the glory may have departed from Israel, but that glory is still on display as God pronounces judgment upon the, Israel, upon the Philistines and fights on behalf of his people. We're told in verse 6 that the Lord terrifies the people of Ashdod and afflicts them with tumors. Now we're not sure what this actually looked like. Could be boils or abscesses of some kind. We read in chapter 6 verse 5 of mice ravaging the land. So this leads many scholars to believe or conclude that this looked like some bubonic plague with rats as their carriers. But either through a plague or through some other means, the Lord is bringing judgment upon the people of Ashdod and it's both nasty and dangerous. And so we read in verse 7, when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. You see, the people of Ashdod understood what was happening. They, they understood that this was something that the Lord, the God of Israel, was doing. They knew that he was going to battle against their God and now against them. This leads them in verse 9 to gather together all of the, the lords of the Philistines and tell them, like, hey, you, you have to get this out of here. The end of verse 8 says this, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And then they say in verse 9, or they tell us in verse 9, that they send the Ark of the Covenant to a new city called Gath. And when they get to Gath, the same thing happens. Take a look at verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. And he, being the Lord, afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. So different city, same result. Tumors, chaos, judgment, the fear of the Lord. In verse 10, we learn that this leads to the ark being sent out to another city, the city of Ekron. And as the ark gets to Ekron, the people of Ekron are rightly afraid that the same thing will happen to them. And of course it does. More panic, more tumors, more chaos, more judgment. 
According to verse 11, this leads the people to Ekron to demand that the Ark of the Covenant be sent back to the land of Israel. When the Ark came into the Israelite camp in chapter 4, the Israelites celebrated and the Philistines were afraid. Then the Ark was captured and the Israelites were afraid and the Philistines celebrated. And now the Philistines again are terrified. Do you see what's taking place in this story? That when God's people thought the Lord had lost, that when they thought he was defeated, when they thought their enemies were stronger than the Lord, when they thought that God was thrown into exile, God all by himself goes into Philistine territory and defeats city after city, having a victory march as he goes through their territory. When the Israelites thought God's, de- God's defeat was actually the means by which he proved himself to be victorious. That his surprising power is on display because through apparent defeat, God gets the victory. And what we see in this story is a pattern that we see throughout all the pages of Scripture, that victory comes through apparent defeat. And we see this, of course, most clearly in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For there, Jesus Christ dies in the place of sinners. He goes into exile all by himself with no help of his people, and he takes upon himself the wrath of God for sin. And afterwards, his body is disposed of. And as he is placed in another man's tomb, and it's during those moments where Jesus Christ remains under the power of death, where his body lays still in another man's tomb. It is there where his disciples believe that the Lord was captured by death, where the rulers and and principalities of this present evil age thought they had defeated and and vanquished the Lord of life when it appeared that God himself had finally been truly defeated. And friends, it looked that way on Friday. It looked that way all day Saturday. But beloved, it did not look that way on Sunday morning. Because Jesus Christ broke forth from the dead and displayed for all to see that victory comes through apparent defeat. That according to to John Stott, that as Christ was being crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he himself was crushing the head of the serpent. Listen to how Paul describes this. In Colossians chapter 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Beloved, through apparent defeat, God has gained the victory and provided salvation for his people. That God has freed us from the tyranny of Satan. That he has freed us from the the power of sin. He has loosened their hold upon us and left them completely powerless. 
He has crushed their heads and bound their hands so that they might not torment us again. So what does this mean for us right now? It means this, that when the battle seems the most hopeless, when we think God's glory has departed from us and has been taken away from us, when sin, Satan, and the enemies of God rage against us, We can take refuge in the Lord who has demonstrated both his sovereign and surprising power as he shows himself victorious on behalf of his often faithless and rebellious people. Over the past month, Detroit Christian, the school that meets here in this building, uh, the students in chapel have been memorizing and singing the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, is our God. And I find that the first two stanzas in particular encapsulate all that we've seen and heard in this passage. So let me conclude by reading those first two verses. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood, through mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe, His craft and power are great, and he is armed with cruel hate. And on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus is it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name from age to age the same. And he, not us, must win the battle. And praise be to God, he has done just that. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, victory belongs to you and you alone. We thank you that even in our faithlessness, Even in our sin and rebellion, you have been faithful to us and you have fought for us and you have provided salvation for us. So we ask that you would give us more confidence in you and in your power. Forgive us for thinking too lowly of you. We ask all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.